It's the South's biggest deal for AJC podcast listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week. For life, as long as you keep your subscription. That's our sports and politics coverage, breaking news and in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films, events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start for new subscribers only. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. We're listening to Breakdown, Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Visit our website, ajcbreakdown.com, for photos, video, and additional background. Previously on Breakdown. When we arrived, there was heavy fire involved on the front right corner. First impression was, this case is ridiculous. They don't have a good case here. The state doesn't have a good case. Do you have a verdict in the case? And so uh, I don't have any idea what the verdict's going to be, but I would simply ask that uh, there be no public outburst whatsoever, regardless of what the verdict is. State of Georgia versus Justin Wayne Chapman. Um, Count one felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty this 29th day of June, 2007. Welcome to episode two. So where were we? Justin Chapman has spent almost eight years in prison for setting fire to his own house in Bremen, Georgia, in 2006. The fire killed his next-door neighbor, 79-year-old Alice Jackson. She lived alone on the other side of Chapman's duplex. Chapman has always maintained his innocence, and he has now lined up an impressive contingent of people who believe him. Of course, the most important people didn't believe him, the jury. More precisely, his lawyer didn't convince the jury. We're calling this saga breakdown, in part because the system broke down repeatedly in the prosecution of Justin Chapman, and Jan Hankins' performance at trial was definitely part of that breakdown. She could not prepare properly for the trial and made some mistakes once it began. In this case, though, there's one thing that separates Hankins from many other defense attorneys. In this case, she has always believed her client was innocent, and she has never given up on him. Eight years later, Jan Hankins figures that she still owes Justin Chapman, and she's still fighting for him. Anytime something calls my attention to this case... I wake up in the night thinking about him. I, this week, had a nightmare about this case where Justin was being taken away and there was nothing I could do, and I just pray that he will be out of prison soon. Jan Hankins is the thread that runs throughout Justin Chapman's story. So who is she? If you've ever had a child in daycare, then you know what 6 p.m. means. 6 p.m. means you have to pick up your kid, not 602 not 6.06. If you're late, they may charge you by the minute until you show. They may even lock the doors. It's almost Pavlovian conditioning for some working parents of young children. The closer it gets to 6, the more stressed out you get. Well, this was Jan Hankins in 2007, 
when she took on the representation of Justin Chapman at a courthouse almost 50 miles outside of Atlanta. She was 48 and married with a young child. I had a two-year-old son, and he's our only. We adore him, and he was in daycare full-time, and it was a church daycare, and they closed the door at 6 o'clock. My husband is a trial attorney. He's in court every week, and my parents live out of state. So someone had to be with that child at 6 o'clock every night, period. It was tough. She also didn't want to miss tucking her son into bed every night. Even though she spent her days traveling all over the state, Hankins did everything she could to be at home at bedtime. you got to get your kid. And um, I enjoyed spending time with him so much. You know, they, just, they grow up so fast that if I had to go somewhere pretty far out in Georgia, I'd just get up at 3 in the morning and drive to court rather than spend the night away from home and you know, miss being with my family. So Hankins knows what it means to be a mother, and she knew that Justin Chapman was a father. Every night I tucked my son into bed. Anyone who's a parent knows that's the sweetest time of your day. And every night when I tucked my son in, I thought, Justin's not tucking his children in tonight. You know, he's sitting there in a cell. His children aren't with him. They're missing each other's lives. They can't get that back. Jan Hankins went to the University of Georgia Law School. After graduation, there was a false start with a communications law firm in Washington. She found communications law boring. Then she returned to Georgia, clerked for a judge in Athens, and discovered her calling. She wanted to be a trial lawyer. While I was clerking for the judge, I had a chance to see what court was like. And I thought, well, I can do this. Um, I can do it better than some of what I see. For the next nine years, she worked for a University of Georgia program representing poor people accused of crimes. I enjoyed criminal law. It's like the emergency room of law. You've got to be on your toes all the time, and it's just suited to some personalities better than others. Hankins later learned she has attention deficit disorder, which she said can be a useful attribute for a trial lawyer. Like many with ADD, Jan says, She thrives in fast-paced, exciting environments, like a courtroom. In 2002, she moved to Atlanta and started to work as a public defender. By the time of Justin Chapman's trial, Hankins' job had become impossible. Based in Atlanta, she traveled constantly to the far corners of Georgia to represent poor people. I ended up with cases, as I say, from Tifton to Tallapoosa, Tifton being at the south of the state of Georgia, Tallapoosa being at the Alabama border, and I had cases as far east as Newton County. She recalls one case in particular. I had a client, I think was in Valdosta, and he was schizophrenic, and he was charged with a very serious offense, um, murder or something close to it. And it takes hours to drive from Atlanta down there. And I would get in the car and drive down there, uh, get there to to meet with my client, and all he would talk about is how the air in the jail was poisoning him, and I I couldn't get anywhere. And then I'd have to turn around and drive back to Atlanta, and there'd be you know ten hours gone. For a video interview of Hankins, go to ajcbreakdown dot com. If Hankins' job was impossible, she was also part of a system that was falling apart. For years, Georgia's indigent defense system was a national embarrassment. Defendants languished in jail for months at a time without ever seeing a lawyer. At many courthouses, assembly line, meet-em-and-plead-em justice was the norm. 
lawyers met their clients for the first time just a few minutes before entering guilty pleas. In some pockets of the state, there was no investigation, no advocacy, no challenge to the prosecution's case. After a number of lawsuits and several exposés of the system's failings, I know what the stories exposed because I wrote a lot of them, the Georgia legislature established a state network of public defender offices. This new system opened its doors on January 1st, 2005, to great fanfare. But less than three months later, Brian Nichols, on trial in Atlanta for rape, overpowered a deputy, took her pistol, and killed a judge, a court reporter, and, later, a deputy and a federal agent. Here's a Georgia Public Broadcasting news clip from that day. version of the FY06 budget, but first a tragic shooting near the Capitol today. The two-block area surrounding the state capitol was a blur of police activity this morning after a fatal shooting. A suspect identified as Brian Nichols allegedly shot and killed three people in a Fulton County courtroom less than a mile from the capitol. Suspect Brian Nichols is still at large. Governor Sonny Perdue is offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to Nichols' apprehension. Not surprisingly, prosecutors sought the death penalty. This just ratcheted up the cost of Nichols' defense. At one point, he had been granted four court-appointed lawyers, all of them billing by the hour. By early 2007, when the bill had ballooned to $1.4 million, legislators began noticing. Then they began fuming. How could this new system they just created possibly be worth it? By May 2007, the state public defender office was out of money. It suspended payments to dozens of lawyers representing defendants facing the death penalty. It also eliminated 41 full-time jobs after lawmakers slashed the system's budget. Why the cuts? Lawmakers were upset about the cost of Brian Nichols' defense. It should be noted that Nichols' final legal bill totaled $3.2 million. Not only that, prosecutors failed to get the death penalty. All this was happening back in Atlanta as Jan Hankins began preparing in earnest for Justin Chapman's trial. Weeks before the trial, Hankins convinced a judge to grant bond for Chapman. This meant Chapman could await his trial at home and not have to sit in jail. But as the trial approached, Hankins knew she wasn't ready. The right thing to do was to ask for a continuance, to give her more time to prepare, to investigate and interview witnesses. But she was torn. The judge had granted her a major concession by setting bond for Chapman, and she didn't want to cross him by saying she wasn't ready. What if he called Atlanta to complain? With 41 of her colleagues gone, Hankins was concerned she could become number 42. So, she pressed on. Justin was granted a bond that day and uh, and walked out, and part of what I did was assure the judge that if Mr. Chapman was released to his community, that I'd get him back to face trial ASAP. So I did feel pressure to honor that guarantee on my part. Hankins began interviewing witnesses, trying to find the strategy that would free her client. With all her other headaches, she also found she was struggling to get evidence from the state. You may be familiar with the legal doctrine of discovery, which is one side's right to discover what the other side has. It's an exchange of information. In the case of the defense, it's critically important, not to mention mandatory, that the prosecution hand over any evidence that might be favorable to the defendant. 
It's going to be extremely important as the case unfolds. It was confused.、Um, part of it was the distance between my office and the Tallapoosa Circuit. If this had been Atlanta, I could have walked over to the DA's office and said, Look, this is what I've got. What do you have? Get your file out. Let's compare notes. And we were doing this long distance.、Um, there were a lot of witness statements that were either audio or videotaped, and the state was copying them or providing them to me. And I would get back to the office with some of these CDs and realize, well, this, wait a minute, it says witness John Doe, but witness John Doe isn't on this tape, it's somebody else. Hip hop is a product of black people, it's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal Constitution presents hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny one film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.comslash hip hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now, the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.comslash indictment newsletter. That's all one word AJC.comslash indictment newsletter. The stage was now set for a trial, a trial Chapman would lose. But before we go to court, let's talk for a minute about how fire and police investigators came to believe that Chapman committed this crime. Remember, there was a fight right before the deadly fire. The Bremen police received a call shortly after midnight from a neighbor of Justin Chapman's. He said he heard a young boy yelling, Daddy, don't shoot him, don't shoot him. Daddy, in this case, was Justin Chapman. Chapman was in the process of pistol whipping William Paul Chives. Chives had shown up drunk at Chapman's door, claiming that Chapman had called his aunt a redheaded crack whore. Chives then called his brother on the phone and said he might need some help in teaching Chapman a lesson. You've probably heard the Southern expression, hit him upside the head. Well, That's what Chapman did to Chives with his pistol. Here's how Stephen Hughes, Chapman's friend who was there, described the fight in a police interview. I know I've seen Justin swinging on hard, too, on top of his head. Justin Hammond had his knees on his arms and just pow, pow, pow like that. The dude said he had enough. That's when Justin stopped. He said, Don't swing on me when you get up because I don't want to hurt you any worse, you know. And when he was getting up off top of the dude, he didn't help the dude up. And There was a couple more words said, then the dude walked off. Shortly after the fight, police found Chives down the street and arrested him for being drunk and disorderly. Back at Chapman's house, one of his young sons was having a panic attack over the fight and wanted to leave. And indeed, Chapman was concerned that Chives' reinforcements might show up at any moment for some payback. So Chapman and his friend, Stephen Hughes decided it would be best for the Chapman family, Justin, his wife Christy, and the four kids, to leave and go to the Hughes trailer for the night. Chapman did take his family to Hughes trailer that night, but police believed 
that Chapman returned to his duplex, poured gasoline or some other accelerant on the front door, and lit it up. No one saw Chapman strike the match, and there was no physical evidence tying him to the scene. So how did the police settle on him as a suspect? Police files show that Stephen Hughes implicated Chapman in the crime. Hughes, who twice flunked out of the seventh grade before dropping out in the eighth grade, had been Chapman's friend for more than a decade. Hughes told police that Justin had bragged that he knew how to burn down a house and not get caught. Hughes also told police that he thought Chapman might have started the fire that killed his neighbor, Alice Jackson. The evidence? A full gas can that was sitting on some coolers at Chapman's house had gone missing. When police asked Hughes why he thought his friend actually did it, Hughes provided a motive that the prosecutor would use to great effect at trial. Chapman was upset his landlord had told him to move out and find another place to live. So how did investigators get there? I know you've seen police interrogations on TV, but here's one in real life. It took place just two days after the fire that killed Alice Jackson, and the police roll out all their tricks for this one. There are threats, there's subterfuge, there's misdirection. They truly sweated Hughes. Not long into the interrogation, he pulls out a handkerchief and begins wiping his brow. He's being interviewed here by state fire investigators Jimmy Maddox and Lee Taylor. They tell him right off the bat he can get in trouble for lying. They also start off all nice and friendly to get him comfortable. There's a lot of laughing and joking. But it isn't long before they begin leaning on him. This happens right after Hughes tells them he did not see Chapman use a pistol to beat up chives during the fight that preceded the fire. Here's one exchange with Maddox. I'll be honest with you, I didn't see no pistol at all. You can be locked up for lying to a police officer. Uh, I, I know. Okay. I, I, okay. I been, well, just warn you so you'll know again. Maddox and Taylor later confront Hughes, telling him he and Chapman had argued that night shortly after the fire. I can't find any witness statements that corroborate this, so it makes me wonder, were the investigators mistaken, or were they fishing? You also told him, you ain't gonna f*** me like you did Paul. Who? I'll whoop your ass. Who, I told you? Yes, you did. Oh, no. Oh, yes, you did. Come on, look at that face. Oh, yes, you did. No, seriously, I swear on my little girl's life, I did Well, okay, well, let me stop there. I've been doing this so long, when people start swearing, that's automatic that you're... Maddox then really turns the screws. He tells Hughes that he and his wife could find themselves in prison and they could lose their daughter if they aren't telling the truth. You know anything about this fire? No, sir. You tell me the truth? I'll tell you the truth. And you'll take a lie detector? Yes, sir. And if you fail it, you go to jail and you charge them running an arson? Well, you give me a lie detector test all you want. I'll bet you $20 I'll pass. But listen to what I said. If you fail it, you go to jail for arson and murder. Wait a minute. Seriously? Failing a lie detector test is not good, but I don't think they send you to jail for it. I thought that required, you know, evidence. I'll tell you what concerns me. Because of some of the implications that we have, you fail a lie detector test, you're going to jail, and your wife's probably going with you. My wife is for what? Well, because... An accessory. An accessory, because... She's telling us the same thing, and there's some other implications there. And, and then who's going to raise your child? Defects gets me to go, she goes to a, you know, some type of a, you know, foster home. 
Hughes acknowledges it was strange Chapman left his trailer in the middle of the night, although he said he did not know what time that occurred. And even though it looks suspicious, Hughes said he could not imagine Chapman would set his own house on fire. Chapman, by the way, has said he did leave the used trailer with his kids that night, but he said once he returned to the duplex, it had already burned down and fire trucks were on the scene. The investigators then played another card. They feed Hughes something that apparently wasn't true, trying once again to get him to turn on his friend. There's some implications that's been made yes. that I don't understand him. He's trying to put it on your ass. Oh, he's trying to put it on me. And, and let me let me explain something to you. <laughs> it's our job to know how that fire was set. So we know how that fire was set. That's what we're trained to do, and, and we know. We have witnesses who saw someone leaving right before the fire. The problem is they match a description that you match, and Maybe. he matches. Okay. So here's our problem. We got him saying certain things. And we got a witness who's seeing a person, and y'all are fairly similar in Bill, fairly similar. Do I need to call my lawyer? For what? They finally tell Hughes they don't think he did it, but they keep applying the pressure anyway. Maddox has to step out for a phone call, leaving Taylor alone with Hughes. She tells him he's still not free and clear. Finally, Hughes tells them something they wanted to hear. Like I said, he might have did. You know, he might he might have been pissed off because he was getting beaten, you know. But I don't know for sure. Hughes also tells them Chapman had been talking about how to burn down a house without getting caught. Next door neighbor's been breaking my trailer. I've been broken into nine times. He said he he used to tell me how to do it next time they left. I said, No, I ain't gonna do no stuff like that. He told me the best way to burn a house down is with a sprayer. I don't know what kind of stuff he's talking about. Take it, spray on top of the ceiling, light it, leave. And leave no evidence. But he's been saying that about two weeks now. And, Hughes told the cops, Chapman had hidden components of a meth lab in his kitchen. It was all highly, highly incriminating stuff. But there was something strange about it at the trial. During his opening statement, Prosecutor Charles Rooks told jurors that he would call Hughes to the stand. And Rooks recounted the most inflammatory things that Hughes had already told the police. But Rooks never delivered on that promise. Hughes was never called to the witness stand. This meant that Rooks was able to get those damaging statements before the jury without ever calling Hughes as a witness. Almost exactly a year after the fire that killed Alice Jackson, Chapman went on trial for felony murder and arson. Presiding was Superior Court Judge Michael Murphy. Now, the name Murphy really means something in Bremen, so let's talk a bit about Murphy's Law. Judge Murphy is the son of the cigar-chomping Tom Murphy, the legendary speaker of the State House, and one of the most powerful men in modern Georgia history. He also happened to be an attorney. Judge Murphy has a tribute to his late father in his chambers. Just a few feet away, in the courthouse law library, hangs a portrait of Tom Murphy's cousin, Harold Murphy, 
who has served as a federal judge for almost four decades. Down the hall, juvenile court judge Mark Murphy, son of Harold, cousin of Michael. That's Murphy's Law, Bremen edition. So now you know why the cops were looking at Justin Chapman. Now let's talk about Charles Rooks, the assistant district attorney who prosecuted Chapman. You won't hear much from Rooks in this account, other than tape of him in the courtroom all those years ago. So how did Rooks prosecute his case? He had two star witnesses and a smaller supporting cast lined up against Justin Chapman. There was Joe White, a jailhouse snitch who claimed that Chapman confessed to him when the two were in jail. He had Gary Allen Stroop, who claimed he saw Chapman limping away from the scene of the fire right after it was set. First, let's take a deep dive into the testimony of the snitch. It all but put Justin Chapman away. Please state your name for the ladies and gentlemen of the jury. My name is Joseph White. Mr. White, you were charged with a crime in Harrison County, am I right? Yes, sir. And how long? Joseph White had previously spent 360 days in jail awaiting trial, charged with molesting two children over a 12-year period. But by the time Chapman's case went to trial, White himself had been acquitted of all the child molestation charges. White testified at trial that for three days after Chapman's arrest, he and Chapman were in the same cell block at the jail. They were part of a group of inmates who prayed together, White said. Here's White on the witness stand. Once again, this audio is not the greatest, so please bear with me on this. We had uh, several conversations, and during one of the conversations, he told me that he did kill, set the fire that killed the lady. At one point, he also said he uh, felt like he had done our favor. He never showed no remorse for anything that, uh, that took place other than that he was scared. You might be surprised by how often prosecutors rely on jailhouse snitches to help them secure a conviction. In short, snitches rat out other inmates in hope of getting a better deal for themselves. Years ago, I covered a trial of this Atlanta nightclub owner facing drug charges. The only piece, and I mean the only piece, of physical evidence introduced at that trial was a photograph that did not prove anything. Instead, prosecutors relied on testimony from 13 convicted drug dealers who had turned into snitches. One of them admitted he'd smuggled tons of cocaine into the country. They all got reduced sentences for helping convict the nightclub owner. That was a real education for me, the use of snitch testimony. But I've since seen it happen time and time again. And more often than not, it seems to work. The key question in Chapman's trial was Joe White's motivation to tell police that Chapman had confessed to setting the fire. Was he doing this to get out from under the child molestation charges? Or was he coming forward because he felt like it was the right thing to do? On the witness stand, White insisted he was not trying to get any favor from the prosecutors, and it's important to remember that. Also, by the time White testified at Chapman's trial, he no longer had those molestation charges hanging over him. This must have made his testimony all the more credible to the jurors. And the story that White told was absolutely devastating. He never told me exactly how he started firing other than the fact that, yes, he said that he did. Did he tell you why? He said he had had several arguments with the landlord and he'd gotten even 
with that landlord because he burnt the house down. White testified that Chapman had told him he had lined up alibi witnesses who would clear him. He also said he was going to blame the fire on William Paul Chives, the man he'd been in a fight with just hours before the blaze. But White said he couldn't figure out how Chapman was going to blame it on Chives when Chives had already been arrested that night and was in jail when the fire was set. There's also the stupid testimony. Here's White. There was a couple people that heard him to have conversations on the phone about they'll never catch me. Uh, I started the fire in such a way that um, Ray was too stupid to find out who did it. He also made that comment to me a couple different times. It's like, Raymond's never caught me doing anything. They're just too stupid. And they'll never catch me for this. Now, of course, Chapman claims he never said these things to White or to anyone else. And by the way, here's a statement from White that doesn't seem to make any sense. This is what White told police in an interview at the jail almost 11 months before the trial. He said Chapman said it after he'd been given permission by a jailhouse chaplain to preach to his fellow inmates. Yeah, I mean, he specifically said, thank you, God, for letting me be there to get my old lady and kids out of the fire. Let me repeat that. He specifically said, thank you, God, for letting me be there to get my old lady and kids out of the fire. Well. That would have been a very strange thing for Chapman to say, because his wife and kids were not even at the house when it burned. They were, you may recall, over at Stephen Hughes's trailer, having fled their home out of fear that the Chives clan was on its way. That statement that White gave to police is completely at odds with the prosecution's theory of what happened that night. It seems like a pretty big contradiction. But White's remarks about Chapman saving his family from the fire were never played for the jury. And White didn't say anything like that when he testified on the stand. Was that significant? I sure think so. But Jan Hankins didn't appear to pick up on it. At least, she didn't tell the jury about it. But a former FBI agent who later investigated the case thinks it was significant. Here's John and Sonia, who works for Chapman's new defense team. For me personally, when I got involved in the case, you know, like Danny, I got, they gave me this that big folder, and I start reading through the transcripts. And when I got the Joe White's testimony, where he made that statement about how they had the prayer meeting, and Justin made this comment about how he was thankful they got his wife and kids out before the fire. I go, to me, that just hit me like a you know the, the light one. I said, this guy's full of baloney. Justin and his family were gone. It was well established an hour before the fire. So, and does that kind of a statement doesn't make any sense? You know, I mean, the way you read that to me, the way I read it, it was like, oh, the house was on fire, and I drug my, I drug the, I saved my wife and kids, you know, from the fire. So that that to me that was really my the eye opener that this guy Joe White was not, you know, being wholly truthful. Hankins' cross-examination of White was truly the make-or-break moment of the trial. If the jury was to believe White, Chapman was doomed. He had been a jailer in nearby Douglas County, but had been caught smuggling contraband to inmates. White pled guilty to a felony, although he never had to serve any time. He got off with probation. In addition, Hankins tried to show that White was trying to get favorable treatment in his molestation case for telling authorities that Chapman had confessed to him about setting the fire. He repeatedly denied 
that he was trying to trade his testimony for a deal, and Hankins didn't have any proof that it was so. Here is White being cross-examined by Hankins. You were trying to get a deal out, out of testifying against Justin Chapman, were you? No, I was not. I had already written a letter to my preacher, which I believe you have a copy of. If I had been looking for a deal, I would have never written a letter. You wrote a letter to your preacher yeah. to set Justin Chapman up so you could then go to the state and say, I talked to my preacher. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. Isn't that right? No. Let's talk about that letter. Prosecutors used it to strengthen White's testimony. While still in jail, White wrote to his preacher that Chapman had confessed to setting the fire, and he offered a whole litany of damaging claims. These included that Chapman had said he started the fire in such a way police couldn't prove he did it, he didn't mean for the fire to kill Alice Jackson, but he believed she was better off now, he had been in several fights and was very upset with his landlord, There were four people who were going to cover for him. All told, Rooks called 18 witnesses. These included Chapman's former landlady, police and fire investigators, and two other inmates from the jail. Now here's one of those strange moments that come up in testimony. If you sit through enough trials, you see things like this. Times when the proceedings don't go exactly as planned. Like Joe White, Dorman Dean Chandler was in jail at the same time as Justin Chapman. And, like Joe White, Chandler told police that Chapman had admitted to setting the fire. He also said that Chapman claimed he hadn't meant to kill Ms. Alice Jackson. But when the trial rolled around and Rooks called Chandler to the stand, Chandler told a completely different story. He testified that Chapman never spoke of the fire or of Miss Alice. But Rooks still found a way to get Chandler's damaging testimony before the jury. His next witness was lead investigator Don Stevens. The detective played a tape of his interview with Chandler, in which Chandler said all the stuff that he wouldn't say on the stand. Chapman wouldn't say how he set the fire, just that he did it, and that he hadn't meant to kill Miss Alice. Now, the jury had the actual guy saying one thing and a tape of the guy saying something else. Jan Hankins brought Chandler back to the witness stand. She established that Chandler was a paranoid schizophrenic who had bipolar disorder. She also established that he was serving time in the Alabama penal system and that he'd love to have a little bit of his time shaved off in exchange for his testimony. Today, Hankins says Chandler later told her his real reason for not testifying honestly. He had been in the jail with with Justin when Justin was uh, detained there. And the witness came in and said, you know, I'm afraid to testify. And I was confused because my understanding, my preparation for that witness involved believing that that witness didn't have anything bad to say about Justin. So we had a lunch break, and I went down to the jail, and I said, Mr. Chandler, why'd you get up there and say you were afraid of Mr. Chapman? And I said, are you afraid of him? And he said, no, no, I'm not afraid of him. I said, then why are you afraid to testify? He said, because my family runs the mafia, and if they find out I testified for the state, they're going to be upset. Well, his family doesn't run the mafia. He's schizophrenic. I don't know what to make of Chandler's testimony or of his later comments to Hankins. It doesn't really matter, though. 
Two other witnesses called by Rooks gave the prosecutor pretty much all the ammunition he needed to put Chapman away. First, let's hear from a 12-year-old boy, Chris Guyton. Chris was a friend of Justin Chapman's son, Austin. He testified that Austin came down the street and said he was worried his father was going to set fire to his house. Now note that this is a child on the witness stand, and the audio is not top quality to begin with. So we're going to play it twice for you. He came down there crying, saying his dad was going to burn the house down and everything. Now, here it is again. He came down there crying, saying his dad was going to burn the house down and everything. Yes. Young Chris was saying that Justin Chapman's son was crying, saying, Daddy's going to burn the house down. Here's something for you to chew on. When the police first heard this, they were told it happened a couple of weeks before the fire. At the trial, however, jurors were told this occurred the day before the fire. Which brings us to Gary Allen Stroop. As we've delved ever deeper into this case, we've found ourselves talking a lot about Stroop's stoop. Stroop testified that he was sitting on his front porch steps before and after the fire broke out. It was from his porch, Stroop's stoop, that Stroop supposedly saw Justin Chapman walking not far away from the scene of the blaze. We can't talk to him now. Stroop died in 2012. So all we have is what he told the police in the days after the fire and then, much later, what he told the jury. Interestingly. It's not exactly the same thing. Not even close, in fact. When Stroop was first interviewed by police, he said he'd been sitting on his stoop at about 3 a.m. when he saw a man walk around a corner behind the wall of a car repair shop just down the street from his house. This was shortly before the fire at Chapman's duplex began to light up the sky. It was dark, of course, and Stroop's stoop is about 200 feet from where the man was walking. Police pointedly asked Stroop if he thought the man he saw crossing the street was Chapman. Here's his answer, recorded during his police interview. They say that uh, the dude who lives at the house carries a cane. This guy, i never seen no cane. So I can't say it was him, I can't say it wasn't. He had a right, limp on the right leg. He had a uh, kind of long, not real long hair, but a little bit longer. You see, kind of see him wave, but yeah, kind of nappy looking hair, you know. When he got to the trial, however, Stroop's story had changed in one key respect. He was no longer unsure about who he saw that night. Here's the tape of his testimony in court. Do you believe you know who it was that you saw? Uh, I believe it was Mr. Chapman. That's right. Now he was all but certain it was Chapman. To give Stroop credit, Chapman had badly injured his foot six years before the fire during an accident at work. But video taken of Chapman just hours after the fire shows he had closely cropped hair. There was nothing, nothing wavy about it. But Stroop was sure. Why would Stroop lie about this? I don't know for sure that he did. He could have been telling the truth. But it's possible that he was telling the prosecutor whatever the prosecutor wanted to hear. And it turns out Stroop had a very good reason to do just that. In fact, 10,000 reasons. On the next episode of Breakdown, what you can really see from Stroop's stoop and the appeal from hell. But as far as subpoenaing a lot of witnesses or anything like that, it was, in, in my opinion, was, it was pretty much a consent motion by that time. 
So you didn't prepare for a hearing? No, not, not. Do you want to know more about this podcast? Go to ajcbreakdown.com for a timeline, photos of the cast of characters, court documents, and bonus audio and video. Breakdown is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson. Audio production by Chris Basta of CO3 Sound Atlanta. Story consultant Susanna Capilouto. Special thanks to Billy Thurman, Bert Roten, Eric Netherton, and Brian Anderson. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.